four of Literary Disco, Robert Frost's New Hampshire. Today, we will begin with a place-based bookshelf revisit, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I will each talk about our favorite bit of writing about a specific place. And then we'll discuss Robert Frost's fourth poetry collection, first published in 1923, New Hampshire. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hello. That, that's my Hello. radio personality. <laughs> Your great personality. Robot. Hello. I like to actually start being called novelist and strip club DJ Todd Goldberg. Hey, everybody, star to the main stage. Star to the main stage. That's actually a really good radio voice. Just... Hey, Ryder and Julia, welcome to Literary Disco. I'm Todd. I want to talk to you all a little bit about books. Actually, can... Can I just have a brief moment to talk about the one time I was a strip club DJ? Yes, please. Yes, please. <laughs> I was going to call that out, and then I thought you might not want that to be public knowledge. But I guess, what was I thinking? There was one time. So uh, I have a friend named Jim who uh, used to own a strip club in Portland, Oregon. Actually, not far from where Ryder got married. And he, uh, he was going through a tough time, and so uh, he and his wife were divorcing, and so I flew up to spend some time with him. And he owned a strip club there, and one day the DJ, whose name was Prison Jack, uh, didn't show <laughs> up to not. work. <laughs> no, I'm sorry, that was the cook's name, was Prison Jack. He learned how to cook in the joint. And so the DJ didn't show up, and he's like, hey, would you DJ? And I was like, yeah, sure, absolutely. I, I was born to be a strip club DJ. And I got up to, like, the riser with the CDs and everything, and I'm ready to be all, hey, everybody, I'm Todd, I'm on the wheels of steel, a star on, on the main stage, and it's going to be great, and, you know, tip your waitress and tip the tips, and hey. And I got up there, and I'm ready to do all that, and then the naked girls start walking up and giving me music to play, and I'm like, uh, uh, uh. Yeah, it's a whole and new so they. Yeah, it's a whole new ball game when there's when there's a naked girl standing in front of you. Wait a and minute, then, did we just find Todd's kryptonite? <laughs> like, is that how we get him to stop talking? Wait, was it always Na- just yes. as simple as naked women? Well, it was it was naked women and the dudes that were there. So there's a law in in Oregon, I guess, where in order for you to have a fully nude strip club, you also have to serve food. Yeah, and so they have that here too. My my friend Jim was like, "All right, so you know." Call out the girl's name, say what song's playing, and then also let's try and upsell the uh, the chicken fried steaks. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, oh, okay. And so I'm I'm flustered now. And mind you, it's like nine o'clock in the morning. It's not like I'm on at seven o'clock at night. This is the strip club's just opened. The dudes are coming in, and there's naked ladies. And so I'm flustered by the strippers, and then. I'm flustered by the guys who show up at the strip club at, you know, 10.30 in the morning to get steak and eggs or whatever and and a, and a little bit of a lap dance. And so I... I just, Let's get I, Diamond a big hand. And yeah, speaking of breasts, who wants chicken breasts? Well, that's Deep exactly fried. how it was. I was like, all right, everybody. And I used the voice. I was like, oh, okay, but I'm really nervous. I'm like, okay, it's justice on stage one and... Don't forget to get the meatballs, which will go along well with your own balls. Mm. And my friend Jim is just standing there staring at me like, what we don't do here is make fun of the people who who are here getting a little breakfast and getting a little naked lady first thing in the morning. And that was my last time 
using the official DJ voice. I'm uh, sensing first there's morning. an essay in here somewhere. That's yeah, Best I, American 2014. Uh, yeah. I, I really should spend some time <laughs> writing, but I don't know why I haven't written about this. We haven't even talked about a book yet. This is my favorite place-based memory. The time that I DJed at the Club Viewpoint in All right, Portland, Oregon. So that's Oregon. Todd's revisit. Julia, what do you have? <laughs> no, we're going to get a real revisit out of this guy because after you cut out 95% of this. <laughs> All right. So I will redeem myself from my time as a strip club DJ. Uh, DJ Toddy G, I think they called me. Or I called myself that. Um, I'm, I'm picking a short story that I absolutely uh, love called The Prophet from Jupiter by a writer named Tony Early. And I don't know if either of you are familiar with Tony Early. Um, he has written, uh, his, his most famous book is a novel called Jim the Boy, um, which came out oh, maybe 10 years ago, something like that. Um, he also had a great collection of essays um, called Somehow Form a Family, which is the best title ever for a collection that of essays a great title. about a family, um, his own. Um, and uh, he also had a collection of short stories called How We Are in Paradise. He's had a, a bunch of books. This short story, The Prophet from Jupiter, um, it, I think it was in Best American Short Stories. It's anthologized just about everywhere you look. It's in my favorite little anthology of short stories I've mentioned uh, on the show in the past, the Scribner Anthology of Contemporary Short Fiction, uh, 50 North American Short Stories since 1970. Um, and it is a very strange subtextual story about a dam keeper um, let me just read the first paragraph, if I can, and you, you might be able to get the, uh, the sense of it. My house, the dam keeper's house, sits above the lake on Pierce Arrow Point. The dam juts out of the end of the point and curves away across the cove into the ridge on the other side of the channel. On this side is the water, 115 deep at the base of the dam. Now on the other side is air, the gorge, the river staring up again, rocks fat down below, a vista. Seen from my windows, the dam looks like a bridge. There are houses on hundred-foot lots all the way around the lake and too many real estate brokers. They all have jangling pockets full of keys and four-wheel drive station wagons with coffee cups sitting on the dashboards. The coffee cups are bigger at the bottom than they are at the top. Sometimes at night, the real estate brokers pull up each other's signs and sling them into the lake. So this story all takes place at this uh, dammed up lake that uh, he lives on, Lake Glen. And the dam keeper is basically losing his mind over the course of this story, over the fact that his wife has left him uh, for another man in town after they had these reproductive issues. And so every paragraph in the story essentially exists both in the present, the past, and sometimes in an imagined present or future as well. And it goes through all these different characters in the city, with the dam keeper being the locus point around them. And this city, or uh, it, it's a summer um, tourist destination, Lake Glen, also being the center point. And Lake Glen is built on top of a city that a uh, logging company, I think it was, um, built over, the Lake Glen Development Company built over. So the water exists on top of a city. And so everything is underwater, and it's all very, you know, metaphorical, obviously, because of that. Um, and I absolutely love this story, and I frequently give it to students to read as a great story about subtext and also about setting, because it's a story that can only happen where it takes place, and also because of all of the imagery that goes along with it. And so I, I love this story. It's, I think it's extraordinarily well-written, um, really moving, um, hallucinogenic, all these things. And 
you know, I, I don't know how either of you feel when you're asked about how you came up, came up with an idea. I know both of you probably are in the position where someone says, how'd you come up with that? Why did you think of that? And it's always hard when people ask me, how'd you come up with that idea? Because I don't remember. I'm usually like, you know, just, oh, I'm in the shower. And I'm going to, how about if a, a hitman was a rabbi? Well, that sounds like a good story. I'll write that. Um, and then there's, you know, then I, I'm also thinking about my mom. So that, <laughs> my, whatever, <laughs> my bad two, family. Your two ideas. Those are my two things. Jews, killers, my mom. <laughs> um, so <laughs> this was, I, I loved the story. And, and Tony Early was at... Um, an event where I was and I was, I was, you know, really sort of geeked out by seeing him. And I went up to him and I said the one thing that, you know, you're never supposed to say to another writer, which is how'd you come up with that idea? And I said it to him and he said, it was my cut file. All these things had come out of other things I'd cut. And then I stitched them together to form this story. And I thought, wow, Mm. that is so cool. And it's, you know, stitched together by this place and by this damn keeper. And I don't know what parts, you know, he invented new and what parts were, you know, from his cut file. But the mere idea that he could take all these disparate elements from his cut file and put them into a story and make it this remarkable short story um, has always been one of those things that, to me, just says, oh, now that's, you know, that's a mind that that few people have that, that can do this. So the short story, The Prophet from Jupiter, you can find it online. Um, we'll put a link up to it on our Facebook page. And, uh, you know, I, I encourage everyone to give it a read. I think it's a good one, a good one specifically about place. It takes place in, um, uh, I believe it's North Carolina is where it's set, if memory serves me correct. Well, um, this is going to surprise no one. And I may have even talked about this um, before, but not in this context, which is one of the best essays of all time, if not the best, which is Joan Didion's Goodbye to All That. Which oh, is the essay. first thing I thought of when we came up with this assignment, and then I tried to push myself to be more creative, and then I decided, why would I do that? Because if we have any <laughs> listeners left that have not read this, um, I'm happy to evangelize about it from this point of view. Um, so Goodbye to All That, if you haven't read it, um, is a an essay about Joan Didion uh, deciding to leave New York. Um, but it goes through her whole time as a young person in New York and she lived there for seven or eight years or something like that. And, um, she, it's just, when you think about it in terms of place, it, it stood out to me because I lived in New York for almost this exact same span of time that she did. And it's so interesting. I read the essay before I moved to New York and it made me want to go there. Then I read it at the same time that I was leaving, and I felt that it completely justified why I left. And now that I've been out of New York for a long time, it's like a completely different essay about growing older and being exhausted and depressed, which almost all of Joan Didion's writing is about. So it's really <laughs> cool. Has she ever has she ever written anything where you're just like at the end, oh, she seems content. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. A peppy, peppy girl. Yeah. Slouching happily towards Bethlehem. I think Yes, striding <laughs> towards Bethlehem. Skipping <laughs> towards Bethlehem. Skipping onward to Bethlehem. I know I've told you guys this before, but I read, I met and interviewed Joan Didion last year, and I read 15 of her books in a four-day span. I just read Joan Didion like 20 hours a day until I finished all her books and I was <laughs> completely I was in a, you became Joe Didion <laughs> you were like speaking in a monotone like you were bored by everything I... <laughs> but that you had great wisdom but about great all that wisdom. you were bored yeah, by yeah. 
<laughs> Greg comes home and you're just like mumbling about the Beatles and Honestly, Charles it, Manson. It was less than the nighttime is okay. Like it's okay to be Joan Didion at night because you it's can. It's okay to be Joan Didion at night. That's not, the greatest quote it's ever. It's not okay to be Joan Didion. I was getting up at like five thirty in the when morning. You're like drawing yeah. the curtains. <laughs> Put it on sweaters and scarves for no reason, even if it's like 90 degrees out, and you're just like huddled in a corner, chain smoking clove cigarettes. Yeah, that's what it was like. But I maintain that is semi normal behavior at night. You guys have to imagine, I was getting up at 5 30 in the morning and being like, I gotta get right into Blue Nights, like about her daughter dying. So I'd like make a pot of coffee and then read, you know, these crazy novels she's written about, you know, gangs in Central America. Anyway, I'm really getting off topic here, which is um, goodbye to all that. You couldn't be any more off topic than me talking about my time DJing at the Club Viewpoint. Way to work it back in so that we have to include it. Um, anyway, so it's just, it's got some amazing writing about New York in it, and I, I wanted to address it because... I love a lot of other books about places, but it's because they help me to imagine places that I've never been or imagine places that aren't real, um, like, you know, the Hundred Acre Wood or Hogwarts or whatever. And those are fun in a place way for different reasons. But to ha- to read something and have it so clearly not only evoke a place you know, but create your idea of the place before you go there is just a really cool experience that I love. So here is... a a quote um, that I absolutely love, and she's generalizing, so of course it's easy to think, this is me, yes. So she says... <laughs> um, this morning at the Twain house, <laughs> I woke. <laughs> oh my god. Oh, sorry guys, this is just an essay I wrote. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when you were channeling Joan Didion. <laughs> oh my god, you should try to channel Joan Didion through the Ouija and oh write god. books based I on that. I become a medium but only of Joan Didion, who's still alive. <laughs> I just want to open a portal from my mind into her mind. To Joan Didion. Oh, it's weird. It's weird how much I love her, because really we are nothing alike. Except, back to my paragraph. <laughs> um, okay, so she says this paragraph, which you guys are going to love. Okay, here we go. I suppose that a lot of us who have been very young in New York have the same scenes on our home screens. I remember sitting in a lot of apartments with a slight headache about 5 o'clock in the morning. I had a friend who could not sleep, and he knew a few other people who had the same trouble. And we would watch the sky lighten and have a last drink with no ice and then go home in the early morning when the streets were clean and wet. Parentheses. Had it rained in the night, we never knew. And parentheses. And few cruising taxis still had their headlights on, and the only color was the red and green of traffic signals. The white rose bars opened very early in the morning. I recall waiting in one of them to watch an astronaut go into space. Waiting so long that at the moment it actually happened, I had my eyes not on the television screen, but on a cockroach on the tile floor. I liked the bleak branches above Washington Square at dawn and the monochromatic flatness of 2nd Avenue, the fire escapes, and the grilled storefronts peculiar and empty in their perspective. Jesus. Yeah. That's awesome. Don't you guys want to have a portal into her brain, too? I do. I do. But she's got to be so sad. I mean, that's the other thing is that she's a genius because she's so also in tune with the empathetic sense of what it is to mourn. Yeah. 
you know, and she's been mourning since she was 25 years old. I mean, I think there's, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. But at the same time, it is just wonderful to feel her evoking things as it's, it's almost like an, being stunned that an alien presence can like so perfectly describe that experience of why are the streets mm-hmm. wet? You know, why are the lights this way at New York in the middle of the night? So anyway, that's one of my favorite essays. And I just picked a random paragraph. I Googled it and read the first paragraph that I scrolled to. Every single paragraph is that good and that New Yorky. I love it. I, I recently read John Updike's biography, which is a thousand pages long for a book review that I'm writing. And they talk, obviously, a lot in that about the onset of new journalism, which, of course, Joan Didion was, you know, a, a big part of. And it, it makes me wonder, you know, if there weren't people like John Updike and Joan Didion and Truman Capote, you know, we don't have David Foster Wallace if we don't have those people first. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't we don't have some of the great writers of today unless those people, you know, at a really young age, in their 20s, in most cases, early 30s, really broke the wall down in creative nonfiction to do entirely different things and to incorporate journalism into it. Just, you know, sort of fascinating stuff. And, and that she's still doing it is pretty amazing. Well, and you know what's really interesting about that? And I could talk about this all day, so cut me off at any time. Um, what's really interesting about that is... All right, you're done. No. <laughs> is um, <laughs> the... It takes a degree of self-centeredness to write like that that I think best exists in your early 20s that hmm. we are very punishing towards in this decade i feel like you know we say you know like oh my god lena dunham's so self-centered but the impulse that is making lena dunham create girls is the same impulse that's making you know joan didion write this essay you know so it's very interesting to me that yeah they did all emerge you know at that time in their lives mm-hmm. yeah well i think i think it's you know uh, someone like joan didion her talent makes it worthwhile. Oh, totally. Uh, you know, the, 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 the narcissism or sense of entitlement or uh, mm-hmm. prioritization of your own perspective is something that everybody, I think, kind of goes through late teens, early 20s. And there are probably thousands of New Yorkers trying to be Joan Didion, yeah. you know, writing really bad essays or just not having the talent that she had. But she clearly had the brain, the brains and the talent to... To do what she I call did, this so. the this better be good clause. If you're gonna do yeah. it, <laughs> this better be good. All right, my choice is is kind of a meta. It's it's a um, a book a, a book about a place, but about writing about a place. If that makes sense, I've actually talked about the book before. It's uh it's by William Leesteet Moon. It's, it's called Prairie Earth, um, and then the sub the 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 subtitle underneath that in parentheses is a deep map. And it's this really incredible book about um, he went to Chase County, Kansas, which was just the blankest spot on the map that he could find. And he wrote this, I think it's something like 700 pages. I I don't have my copy with me right now because I can't find it, which means I loaned it to somebody like so many of my favorite books that I then (laughs) lose and never get back. I know. Yeah. But um, yeah, so it's it's, it's a very long book. And basically, you know, it's just the subtitle, A Deep Map, is perfect because it's exactly what... It, he tries to do it's like he's trying to understand a space and how do you do that through prose and he just he does everything he writes about the history he writes about the ecology he writes about the native american history the white history he writes about famous people that have died there famous people who have passed through there he spends 
I think over a year there, he sits on a, he parks his van on a street corner and just watches it for 12 hours. He huh. takes walks by himself into these fields. Um, it's incredible. And it, you know, the whole idea, the whole project of the book is how do you know a place? How do you get to know a place and what defines a place? And, um, it's really incredible. And, and I think, you know, especially for writers out there or, I guess maybe just thinkers in general who who are fascinated by this question of like how do you represent something you know is a, when you look at a map because if you look at a map of America Chase County Kansas is just this blank spot with minimal population and nothing there and by the end of reading this book you are so invested in this this nothingness and this this spot that didn't mean anything to you before and now suddenly feels so rich and full of life and meaning and um to me it's just the perfect example of how any any place no matter how boring on the surface or uneventful or uninteresting in some capacity like if you invest in it if you're if you're if you approach it from the right angle if you see it in the right light if you can write about it or express something about it comes alive in such an interesting way and it's you know William Lee Steep Moon is just one of these authors he's just brilliant you know it's it's mostly about his insights um uh and i think the best parts of the book are actually just him when he's just kind of hanging out in the town like at one point he he starts interviewing local teenagers because he realizes that he's been writing you know he hasn't really written about the teenagers and so he just sits and talks to the teenagers about like their prom and what's going on and what they do in their town and like where they go drinking and you just get this sense of like oh my god this is another way that this place is coming there's a whole youth culture here even though it's this you know bohunk town in kansas so i it's such a good book and so if anybody is interested in, in the concepts of place and there there is a strong environmental argument that he's making too throughout the book um not consciously but it builds because we you know we we've decimated so much of the prairie grass that used to cover a huge amount of the um the you know the midwest um and um it's gone now and we're losing our prairie essentially to farmland and you know we're destroying the soil because we want our hamburgers but it's a um it's a fascinating amazing examination of place and how we write about a place uh near the end of the book he has this great segment too and he he borrows it from Tristram Shandy uh uh which uh wow who what's Tristram Shandy written who's that written by Lawrence Stern uh, you know the uh, famous book Tristram yes. Shandy it's like this weird the, the, book the first book ever yeah yes. <laughs> um and I guess this is a, I haven't read that book but I guess this is a, a trope from that book he says I've tried to write everything I can about this place and he goes through this big list of all the things that he didn't get to include and then he says and so I'm just my next page is just going to be black with all the ink. Uh, I'm just mm-hmm. gonna fill the page with ink, and then you can imagine it like, uh, you know, you know the way Michelangelo looked at a, a, a rock and saw the carving inside of it that was all that was not there. You can look at this ink-filled page and create the words of everything about, you know, this county in Kansas that I could not include. It's just cool things like that, like all these weird. And you just by the end of this book, you've been on this incredible journey into kind of nowheresville, America, and. It's it's really really fascinating. So well, I now I, now I have to read this book. That just yeah. for the just for him interviewing teenagers alone, I need to read this book because <laughs> yeah. I'm I think that's a fascinating look into any place is the what the youth are doing. The right. people because they don't that wasn't their choice to be there. Yeah, you right. know most of the people it's their choice to be there, but the kids and they feel the freedom they, to leave. Know. Teens don't. Right, exactly. They're longing for exactly. that moment. 
Yeah. Wow. Yes. We got some good reading to yeah. do. We do indeed. Jeez. We do indeed. That that sounds like a good book, and it's only what eight hundred pages. I know that's the problem. It's it's a, it's definitely like meditative and long. You know. Sounds awesome. Um, so. But it, it, I really, it's worth it. If anybody has patience, it's While it's you really were describing it. it, I got an idea for something I want to write, which I'm obsessing over in my brain, which I can't think of a higher compliment of a description of a book. So now I'm excited. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the best, right? When literature <laughs> yeah. starts spinning you into different directions. Yeah. Like, yeah, you got, you got to read it then. You got to read it. Um, I was, it'll keep it, going. it made me think of what it'd be like to work in a strip club with you guys. And, like, maybe have a reality show about a strip club in a small town where I'm, like, sort of the crazy DJ. And okay, I know who writer... I am. I'm the boss who fires you. Yeah. Oh, that was not, that's not how I, that's not how I imagined this whole I mean, literary disco going. does kind of sound like a strip club name. So it'll be a literary-themed strip club. Oh, no, you're right. Yeah. Everyone wears right? glasses. Mr. That's the only yeah, Mr. Darcy to the main stage. Mr. Darcy to the main stage. Mr. That'll be the night when the men dance. <laughs> Holden Caulfield, Holden Caulfield uh, to the main stage. Strippers dressed as Virginia <laughs> Woolf, throwing stones out of their pockets and then undressing. This is a great idea. We'll open this at the, at the same time as we open our biblical strip club. <laughs> this is a horrible oh, idea. Man. Welcome back, everyone. Now, if you're anything like the three of us, you have a cup of hot cocoa, quite literally, (laughs) in one hand, and a collected works of Robert Frost in the other hand, in this beautiful early winter of 2013. Um, So for this episode, and that is real, we are really doing that. It's kind of embarrassing, but... Mine's the Trader Joe's brand hot cocoa. I I don't know what... It's super good. The Wait, instant stuff? Yeah, but do you, Wait, do you mix it with milk or with water? Well, it depends how quickly I need the cocoa. Right. If I have some time, I make it with the milk. Yeah. If, like, just a little bit ago, I just do it with the water. And it's better with the milk. But, oh, it's so good. You I know, Craig is making milk. my cocoa right now. Craig, could you put a little splash of milk in? <laughs> <laughs> and also, uh, could you put a dash of really cinnamon? They're selling it to me. Oh, you want the milk? Would be nice too. Oh, yeah, if you don't have, if you don't put marshmallows in, it's barely even cocoa. Do you guys ever put a few chocolate chips in the bottom and let it melt? I'll put a fucking banana in there. I'll, I'll put anything. <laughs> okay, that one is not endorsed by Robert Frost. Okay, anyway, back to Frost. So. Um, we've done poetry on here before, but we've always done living poets. So um, I said to the guys here, a lot of them have been suicidal, though. We should note. (laughs) Okay. Um, Robert Frost, not alive. So um, I felt that we should do an episode about poetry that we could um, dig into, and it's always nice to go back to the classics, which you guys hopefully have read. Um, So um, I decided that we should read um, his poetry collection, New Hampshire. And the reason I decided that is, um, you know, I think everybody's read some Robert Frost, but I wanted to read a collection, you know, really experience the album rather than the hit singles and see how they all fit together. (laughs) And if that changed the work. I I think that's a perfect way to put it. I mean, I I completely agree. I hate the way poetry (laughs) is you know, taken out of context in 
so many ways nowadays. Like, we don't read collections, and, and often authors intended it to be this way. Well, not often. They did. They intended it to right. be this way. So, I, and I yeah, think... But I, exactly. I did just get a vision of Robert Frost, though, as sort of like a teen idol. <laughs> you know, like, just a, a rock star, just, you know... I guess maybe well, he was a rock star as a poet in the 1920s. I guess yeah. that would be apt. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so yeah. So, Ryder asked me before we started recording why, why I picked this one. And the reason I picked it was I said, I don't want the collection where um, The Road Not Taken is. Or The Road, the road Less, less Traveled. Wait. Oh, my God. The Road Less Traveled. Wow. I can't believe no, wait. I... Hold on. Actually, now that you said that, I suddenly am questioning myself, too. It's The Road Not Taken. You were right. Yes, I was I right. Think it is, I think of it as the road less traveled. Because huh. that's the that's the second to last line. I took right. the road less traveled by. And that's um, anyway, so I wanted, but I did want to pick a collection where there were hit singles woven in. Um, so <laughs> I love that analogy. Chose, that is awesome. Uh, it's true. So I because stopping by woods on a snow evening is a poem that I love. Fire and ice is so simple that a lot of people know it, and it also has nothing gold can stay, which. Um, from I've the outsiders, really liked as well. Yeah. Um, so, and also, what's cool about this collection is Frost was already famous, but he hadn't. He was kind of in the middle of his fame, so he had won some prizes. But then this collection won the Pulitzer Prize. So, um, which he then won like four times or something crazy. Yeah, right? which is yeah. amazing. <laughs> That's absolutely insane. So he. So I just thought it was great collection that would be emblematic of his career as a poet but also going back to some i was happy to find very weird poems that yes. have been lost to history so um what did you guys think did you enjoy it what did you enjoy etc have at it i'm gonna sip my cocoa <laughs> and not speak for 30 minutes this is gonna be this is gonna be a tough episode for me <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah. I, I'm sufficiently intimidated by Frost's popularity and uh, position in the history of American letters that I won't go on a rant, but... <laughs> well, never, well, you just I, lost I, half of our listeners. I've never gotten Frost. I've never understood him. I've never thought anything of him except for, you know, in maybe an American poetry class I took where we did read a couple of the, the, the you know, the big ones, uh, design... Um, Stopping by, you know, Woods and, and I mean, the, the classics, the, the hit singles, as, as you said. Like, I read those and I appreciate the craftsmanship, certainly, the, the, um, but I, I really, I don't get it. I don't understand what the big deal is. Um, mm. and I'm hoping maybe you can help, uh, you know, elucidate that for me, um, because I'm not really, there's nothing wrong with Frost, I guess. Like, there's nothing. I read his, his poems and I and I go, yeah, this, these, they're they're nice. They're they're they're, they're fun to read. They're fun mm-hmm. to read. They're simple. They're 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 pleasing. You know, it's like a, it's like a nice cup of hot cocoa. There's the sense of um, familiarity, maybe because we all grow up in this generation, or you know, in by the time we were born, Frost was so steadily canonized that we. Um, we know so many of these poems and these lines sound familiar and they're, it's almost like folk stories for us or um, folk mm-hmm. songs in a way. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there's an element of familiarity and, pl- and, and, and something pleasant. And, and I tried to kind of remove that 
and read this collection just as objectively as possible. And like you said, hopefully there's some weird poems. Like the opening poem is very strange and long, mm -hmm. and there's longer poems than I'd ever read of his, and more narrative than I ever thought he got. I mean, he always had a narrative Absolutely. component, but there's so many crazy narrative poems, like just narrative, like dialogue between characters um, and mm -hmm. introducing strange characters. And he has a French neighbor, and he goes to the Frenchman's house and like meets his wife and sits down. And, you know, there's like these these little um, vignettes and, and stories almost. And so that was cool to experience a little bit, to, to, to experience a little more Frost than I had before. But I have to say, I, I don't know what the big deal is. I, I felt, right. um, yeah, I feel like it's, the word that I kept coming back to in my mind was quaint. Bukaki. <laughs> I felt I felt I, I like totally it, get what you're saying. It, it, it felt like quaint and um I don't know what he's saying. Even his best poems like Stopping by a Wood in a Snowy Eve when I I read it maybe 10 times cuz like when we got when we got to that in the collection I was like, "Ah, here it is." And I read it and I read it and I read it. I don't know what he's saying. I don't get it. I don't get what the big deal is. Is he just stopping his horse and watching the snow fill up <laughs> and thinking, "I have some deep thoughts right now." Okay. I'm gonna move on with my deep thoughts. Okay, what are your deep thoughts? Like that's okay. what are we what are we gonna talk about here, Frost? Take a stance. Tell Bobby. me something. I, I, I want to interject because the, what you are, I think your point of view is completely valid, and I think a, that's a lot of people's experiences is that he's so canonized that it removes, um, you know, our ability to think critically about it, like a lot of classics. However, I still like these poems, and I, I like them even more. Um, after reading them in the collection, because what I like about Frost, um, and I'm, I'm happy we talked about place because I also feel like this is a very New Englandy thing, um, is that they're all quaint, but they're all like they're all really <laughs> depressing. It's like at the same time you're reading a bunch of poems about ponies, but <laughs> they're death ponies. Uh, so, you know, so stopping by woods on a snow evening has been interpreted as. And I felt this, especially after reading all the weird witch poems and stuff yeah. that come before it. That is um, weird. It's, it's about, uh, you know, he's exhausted and he's looking into this dark, you know, deathly universe and exhausted and ready to die. And But he has obligations left in his life and he just gazes in, into the distance of his uh, the unknown and decides, uh, you know, it's not for him today. Now, that's a broad interpretation of a poem. But I think that it, for me, it strikes true because um, so many of these poems are about changing of seasons. Well, almost all of them are about this change of seasons in muddy, cold, dark New England, which is really depressing and constantly reminds you <laughs> of the passage of time. So I like them because through their quaintness, they're really highlighting the sinisterness of change and the inevitable march towards your own gloom, which led me to wonder, how do you guys, I can't imagine living in California where that wasn't a fact in my everyday life. Like every single day <laughs> living in Connecticut, I think about the weather and I think about the onward march of time. So for me, that's a very natural, you know, I think thing to read about. It's, it's different in Southern California than it is in Northern California. In Northern California, there are seasons. In Southern California, there there's summer and spring, basically. And yeah. right now, which is one month of winter. Um, you know what? 
I'm I'm in the uh, Ryder Strong camp here. I'm Team Ryder. Hashtag Team Ryder. Okay, um, right. Which is that I've never quite understood the uh, the popularity of Robert Frost. However, um, in reading this, I'd never read the the epic poem New Hampshire, and mm-hmm. I don't understand how anyone can read seventy five percent of the poems in this collection and understand them if they have not read already the first poem New Hampshire, which all the other poems essentially reference yeah, they're all uh, at some yeah. point. Yeah. yeah. So if you if you just read an individual poem, like even the two witches, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, the two witch poems, the Witch of Coos and um, what is it, the the Popper Witch of Sue Grafton, something like that, the Popper Witch of Grafton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you know, even those are referenced just in a, a line or two in this in this big epic poem. I, I have a real problem, generally speaking, with rhyming poetry. And it just feels, I, I just, I don't like rhyming poetry. And it doesn't, it's not my, it's not my normal bias against most poetry, which is that I don't get it or I, I get bored by it or whatever. I just find rhyming poetry reminds me of being 14 years old and, and rhyming poems. Um, however, there was one poem that I'd never read before that I really loved. And that was Maple. Oh my God. I, that was one of my favorites too. I was dumbstruck with how much I liked that poem. And... At that point in reading the book, you know, this that's uh, it's about 30 pages into the book, and it's it's uh, after a very long couple poems well, not very long, but pretty long The Census Taker and uh, The Star Splitter. The Star Splitter, I have no idea what I read. Um, but Maple is, uh, you know, it's a, a girl ruminating about what her, ma- her name means, and she's been misnamed by everyone. Everyone thinks her name is Mabel, and there's this whole story about how she was named, and it's heartbreaking and fascinating and, and interesting, and I suspect as someone like Ryder, who might occasionally have his name mispronounced or questioned, <laughs> a, poem <questioned>. like, <laughs> a poem like Maple <laughs> might might resonate for, for you, but even for me, you know, I saw my name Todd, T-O-D, and, you know, I, I get called Todd with two Ds, or I get called Ted, or for some reason I get called Scott a lot. I have no idea why. But the, this issue of what, what a name means and, and, how, and how it was come to, I think, is interesting. And then other poems after Maple are really heavy on the imagery of maple trees, which, you know, was, was a fascinating thing. But there was just a lot of poems in here that I would read, and I'd be like, I wonder what's going on on Chopped. I wonder if they got a good basket. Like maybe they have to make something with like a pan Purdue type thing, mm-hmm. and then and so it just it started to bore me, and so I'd have to read it in fits and starts. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. I mean, I liked Maple too because it's a, it's a good example because in a way Robert Frost is the. Here's another stupid metaphor about this book of poetry. It's like the M Night Shyamalan of poems. Like you're with a poem forever. He got steadily is, worse? Is that what you're no, saying? No, yeah. New Hampshire is... There's for, a twist yeah, ending? No, that's, I, the twist ending, yeah, that's where I'm going. Without Bruce Willis, he's nothing? The, the last, so Everything New you've Hampshire, been reading is wrong. He's actually an alien. I regret this. I regret this deeply. They're not in anyway. a separate land. They're in a, they're in a, like a, just a, a walled-off area is the thing. Oh, God. They're not okay. poems about right. death. They're poems about birth. <laughs> and the whole thing is written backwards. And then Robert Frost, like M. Night Shyamalan, appears in his poems. Oh, my God. Anyway, I guess what I'm saying is that his poems end with a classic turn. Yes. <laughs> like, 
like a sonnet. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, um, New Hampshire is <laughs> like a 15-page poem. Do you guys remember what the last line of New Hampshire is? Uh, it's, at present, no. I am living in Vermont. Yes. Oh, yes. That was yes, a great yes. little last yes. line. Um, which is, it's fantastic because he's talking about idealizing this amazing place. But um, Maple ends with a similar turn, which is... Um, I guess I, I feel weird spoiling a poem, but they're really short, so I guess I'm not going to feel bad. Um, the turn at the end of Maple is, you know, that this search destroyed her life mm-hmm. and ruled her life too much, and so don't give your kids weird names, right. essentially. And um, there was another uh, great one that I can't remember, but there was it happened many times of this poem takes you somewhere, and then, like a sonnet, brings you to a new conclusion that I really like. Can we go back to New Hampshire for a second? Because it had some great yes. lines in it. Um, New Hampshire was very quotey, uh, which is always enjoyable. So one that I underlined was, um, he talks about how great New Hampshire is, but how it's hard to be an artist there because there's nothing wrong with it. So you have no pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. So he says, we get what little misery we can out of not having cause for misery. And the whole poem is filled with those little lines. Um, Yeah. I, I do. I love the structure. I wish uh, more poetry collections did this. Where you know, I love the structure of, of a poetry collection that begins with one poem that's sort of the er poem that that is like a catalog and references all the later poems, uh, like you were talking about, um, Todd. I, it's interesting because, especially with our current cultural anxiety about poetry, it's hard to come into a poetry collection and feel like it has to build something from nothing, rather than deriving or deconstructing an existing thing, you know, like a first poem or a thesis statement or a very direct poem, which New Hampshire is. And that's great because that is what poetry is actually doing is it's deconstructing or finding a new point of view on something that already exists in the world rather than creating something from nothing. Okay, uh, so like, yeah, I totally Hold on, agree. I'm going to pounce. Wait, wait, what, what does, what, what does he deconstruct or say different about the world though? I mean, I really, I, I would like writer from now on for you to say that poems. before, before any time you're about to have an opinion. Okay, Hold I'm on. Good about I'm well, a but what you just said is a good description to me of, of good poetry. And I, I don't feel that like you could tell me that these poems were written in 1742 and mm-hmm. I would probably be more forgiving. I would be like, wow, so this was when people were deciding what English poetry was going to sound like and what we were going to, how we were going to look at the world around us and, and write pretty, write prettily about the world around us and, and our, our, our very slight observations about axe handles or the way, you know, this tree looks versus that tree or, or why we name our kids different things. Like, but by the 1920s, like, aren't we at a point? I, I, I mean, and I don't, I don't, I don't know if I actually believe this. I'm just saying it. Like, Formally, he's very conservative. His poems rhyme. They have very sort of predictable structures and, and feelings and, and, and patterns to them. Um, if, if they're not actually sonnets or, or, you know, real structured poems, they still have this sense of um, familiarity and, and, and rhythm that, that, that is old-timey in a way, even by the 1920s standards. And then what they say is very sentimental and kind of predictable. I mean, the, the most blatant example I could think of is the kitchen chimney poem, which is this poem mm-hmm. where he's, you know, saying, build me a kitchen chimney, but don't put it on the table. Don't put the, and, and you're kind of reading this poem going, why is he, you know, and he's describing how he, he wants yeah. the kitchen built and da, 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 da. And the whole thing is building to the final line, which, you know, he said he wants his, his kitchen chimney to reach all the way to the ground because a chimney that would 
all right, here we go. A shelf's for a clock or vase or picture, but I don't see why it should have to bear a chimney that only would serve to remind me of castles I used to build in air. And so the whole poem is to arrive at a cliche. And I, I had that moment but where I was like, here, wait a minute. Here's my question, though. Is that cliche because of Robert that's what, Frost? That's though? what I was hoping for. I looked yeah. it up. No. It's, uh. That's the problem. Because <laughs> I, I had the same exact thought. I was sitting there going, oh, is this where that, that cliche comes from? And then it's like, no, he he's just using a cliche. So, so it's like he... And, and I started to, I think that that kind of expands thematically to most of his poems where what they're actually saying, I mean, they may say things well and, and they may be fun to read to a certain extent, but where you arrive for me is very comfortable. And I don't know if, if, if comfortable is where I think great poetry should take me. I mean, for me, like, okay. you know, you say the M. Night Shyamalan turn, you know, structurally, and I know, what, <laughs> I know your point, but like for me, and I was trying to think of, of of how I feel about Frost and the the person I came to and I I know that there are problems with this comparison is Thomas Kincaid the painter of light and <laughs> and you know part of the reason I say that is because I and and it's there's a huge difference which is namely that Thomas Kincaid was never respected by the world of painting you know the the critical world right. of painting right, he was right. just hugely popular whereas he Frost, was McDonald's right but whereas Frost was across the board popular like you know. Ezra Pound was the first reviewer to really praise him and give him recognition, which is mind-boggling to me, considering how experimental Pound was and how much Pound pushed the envelope thematically. But, but the, with the way that Thomas King, the reason I think of the Thomas Kincaid comparison is that I honestly think if I didn't know anything about painting or Kincaid or whatever, or the history of art or whatever, not that I actually know much about the history of art to begin with, but I think if I look at a Thomas Kincaid this painting... This is a rant now. Sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're actually ranting. Okay. If I look, you've actually, go you've gone, gone from on. You've gone from Frost to, to, to Thomas right. Kincaid Have you to... Guys, if you look at a Thomas Kincaid painting, it's pretty. It's nice to look at. It makes you feel comfortable. It's like, yeah, I can see why that's fun to have on your wall. Like it's it it looks cool, like a little cottage in the woods with snow and the light. You you look at a Thomas Kincaid painting and you feel good. You feel warm inside. And I feel the same way about Frost's poetry. Um you know, but I think if you speak to most people in the art world, they 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 roll their eyes at at Thomas Kincaid for better or worse. And you know, they 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 have good or bad reasons. I don't I'm not an artist. I, mean, I can't speak about art. But like with Frost, for me, it's like it, it's very similar in that it's formally, it's it's well made. I, I, I have to recognize that it's incredibly well made. Um, but I just don't, I don't get much out of it. Like I walk okay. away and I go, I feel warm inside. It's like empty calories. Yeah. I, I think the, the thing for me is that there are, in this entire book, New Hampshire, you know, there were a few poems that, you know, struck a chord with me. But by and large, uh, I, I, maybe I just don't like poetry that's just looking at uh, a pasture. Um, you know, I, that I, I need something that's more about people than about places, I think, which is odd in, in the context of this episode where we're talking a lot about um, place. But I, there, the sameness of the things also started to sort of grate on me. No, see, I but then, but look at, like, Emily, think about Emily Dickinson. Like, because she most of the time is just, like, looking at birds or looking out her window. Or uh, William Carlos Williams, who was contemporary, yeah, that's who true. to me is, like, mind-boggling. Like, when, when William Williams Carlos Williams I really like. Yeah. But William Carlos Williams, I think, takes it to another level, um, both emotionally and language-wise. Right. And, and 
and and maybe Frost is just more simple. Maybe he ha is so popular because he's easily to easy to digest. Except for of course some of these poems in this, like the well, witch poems. I can poems. wrap my head around his popularity. Like I get that mm -hmm. that, that yeah. it's comfortable to read. I mean, as as far as because poetry is intimidating as hell, and so this is very fun to read. Uh, you know, and, and to approach, it's approachable. But I don't. What I don't understand is is the re like the lasting resonance. You know, mm -hmm. beyond like a sort of like folky quoting popularity like why did he win four pulitzers like that blows my mind okay can i respond yeah you may <laughs> please um please. so you know with a with the caveat that he's definitely not my favorite poet but i um because i agree with you i think emily dickinson and actually especially wallace stevens do really similar things oh from um, from princess bride <laughs> <laughs> oh god okay um inconceivable so I, think, no, I think that the poems are a lot more sinister than you are giving them credit for and that the, there, there is, is a man a, who fucks a tree in it so yeah yep um <laughs> but i'm thinking like so two poems that were very far apart in the collection but that go together is there's a poem about a man who burns down his house to buy a telescope and is looking at the stars and then the poem asks you know but you don't understand anything more so you know look what you did and then the last poem is about a house burning down and how you know the birds don't care but anyone watching them would feel that they did which in as i'm saying aloud feels like a cute sentiment but it is you know it's really about destruction and pain and sorrow and all that good stuff i think the reason that People, including me, like Wallace, or Wallace Stevens, no, <laughs> like Robert Frost, um, is that it deals with, you know, huge themes and everyday themes. And that's always going to feel cliche on some level. I think that, well, not always, but I think it's easier to go there to, to judge it as sentimental because he's dealing with nature and time and but, but to go back to the, the burning down the house, uh, when I read that, I hadn't read that poem before, but I was instantly reminded of, surprisingly enough, a famous old poem by a Japanese samurai, uh, mm -hmm. Since My House Burned Down. Since My House Burned Down, I now own a better view of the rising moon. Um, that was written in 1688. Oh, um, but that, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's a haiku. It's a tiny little poem, but I like that. That's really cool. I love that. Who is I that love by? that. Uh, he's a Japanese samurai <laughs> poet, uh, named, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I am wrecking his name. Mizuda Masahide. Um, my, uh, friend, Mary Cry Waters, a wonderful short story writer used since my house burned down as the title of a short story of hers, uh, in her first collection, mm. the laws of evening. Um, but it, in that haiku, I get more than I get in that entire poem about the yeah. guy who burns down his house for the telescope. Me too. Me too. Um, it's just a, a wonderful poem. And, and, but so maybe I'm overwhelmed by the amount of reading that goes into one of those long poems to get to that M. Night Shyamalan ending when you could just say, you know, he burned down his house so he could have a telescope. That might mean more to me, you know? I don't, yeah, I don't but, know. Uh, I, I don't think it's good to say, to judge style against style like that. You know, it's not what's, you know, that, that's taste or that's, you know, what's resonating with you at the time. You know, if the, if the question is, is there 
something more than ponies shaking their tails in Robert Frost poems, I will fight you to the death and say, yes, there is. And that's why, even if it's something that you're not connecting with, there is obviously such craft and care. And I ended up coming out liking him more from reading the collection and going through the weirdness and going through long random things because you feel him working things out more than in a poem like nothing gold can stay which is six or seven lines of which is remarkable nothing gold can stay is a remarkable poem i i don't think i'd read it in years and then when i came across it i didn't i don't even think i knew it was in this collection and i when i got to i was like oh man now i really understand why pony boy had to stay gold it makes a lot more sense now the entire outsiders book and movie (laughs) I guess the poem that I kept thinking of for obvious reasons was The Snowman by Wallace Stevens, which has mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, winter imagery and and is about reflecting on the land a winter landscape. And mm-hmm. every time I read that poem, I I am struck by its strangeness and I and I have to think about what it's saying and I have to reconsider mm-hmm. it and and um re reevaluate, you know, my position in relation to this poem and and i i guess i feel like there's more of a in in the poetry that i tend to like especially nature poetry it's um it's not about arriving at a sentiment it's about asking a question and right. most of the time i That's feel like point. robert frost is arriving at a sentiment mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. So it's I, it's I I find it easier to dismiss. Do you know what I mean? Because it's mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I don't think you've really thought that through, Robert. You know, like I can't help but <laughs> but be like, well, that was sort of self satisfying, and you pat yourself yeah. on your back for that thought. And I think it's not surprising that his his most popular poems are the ones that are a little more sinister, obviously sinister, and and mm-hmm. and you know, stopping by a wood on a snowy eve to me are. It's it, it 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 hints at that. It hints at a darkness, like you were saying, and it does hint at something way more. And you have to kind of take a, a moment and go, "Wow, there, there's something going on in this guy or in this narrator, or this moment." Um, I, I wish he had done more of that. I guess I, I, for me personally, I just that's what I want from from poetry because otherwise, I I don't know what some sometimes I don't know what a poem is doing that a, a photograph of a cool landscape isn't in this mm-hmm. case or mm-hmm. or what 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 shouldn't be a short story you know like when he's talking about yeah. encounters with neighbors and and he's writing whole poems and dialogue they're kind of just to me bad short stories that rhyme as opposed to like you know <laughs> no that's an ouch. anthology that is an anthology we could sell tonight <laughs> but you know what I mean like if it was if it was if I don't if it was well, like, right, if it was somebody. Um, I'm trying to think of a, a very minimalist uh, prose writer who was writing about an encounter he had with his neighbor about an axe handle. Like that could be really cool, and that that would be like an Amy Bender short story. Yes. you know, you, or not you even Amy that. Bender's a little too surreal. I'm thinking like a, a Raymond Carver, like a really mm-hmm. you know dry, bare bone. Like, and sometimes I felt like Frost is almost reaching for that, but then it because of course it's poetry, it's more flowery and and and. Um, and then he kind of reaches a hallmark sentiment, like where it's you know, and that's why neighbors get along, or you know, and that's why I you know need to leave my for, my farm more, or you know, there's always this sort of nice, ah, um, you know, or you know, like you're saying the M Night Shyamalan dun 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 moment, <laughs> and either way, I feel like it's a little, um, Pat, yeah, 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 well, yeah. And you know what poem feels that comes to that sort of Pat 
sentiment at the end for me. And it's it's a fairly, you know, the, the poem itself, I, I didn't know what I was going to get into, is Wild Grapes, um, where, mm-hmm. you know, it ends with, you know, what, what is a, a, a fairly, uh, you know, wise thing, I suppose. The mind is not the heart. I may yet live as I know others live to wish in vain to let go with the mind of cares at night to sleep. But nothing tells me that I need to learn to let go with the heart. And you can almost hear that as a voiceover, you know, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. like, oh, yeah. And but it's it, I, when I got done with it, I was like, oh, yeah, it's sort of a nice remembrance of a childhood experience that, you know, has a larger metaphorical meaning later on in life. But it didn't stick with me. And that that was sort of the thing about the, the poems in here is that once I was done with them, I didn't feel the need to go back and read them again. I didn't feel the desire because I felt like that emotion at the end was one that I already easily understood. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it just wasn't taking me in in some of the poems, many of the poems, to a new light. Maple does. Um, Nothing Gold Can Stay does, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, Fire and Ice doesn't. Um, you know, Fire and Ice, number one, I was like, oh, this is... People love this poem for what is obviously very, you know, simple sentiments. Um, but maybe it's because it's just so, uh, I'm sure I studied it in college at some point or high school, and it's so gone over that it, it now stops being a piece of art and just starts being something familiar. Like you an know, artifact. Uh, exactly, mm-hmm. an artifact. Like Ode on, Ode on a Grecian Urn, you know. I, I don't know if you can read that now and have it mean what it would without having studied it, you know, all those years ago when you had to read it. I mean, I think classics can and should um, feel fresh at at moments. Like, uh, to go back to Nothing Gold Can Stay, a poem that I also really like. Um, the phrase, so leaf subsides to leaf, it just, it still has impact every time I read it because it's so, because of the language of it, locks together so well, and it feels literally like leaves subsiding um, onto the ground in a way that overrides the fact that I've read that line a hundred times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that is the standard that we should hold the poems to. But it's almost impossible to, you know, feel that feeling afresh, which is something that, to go back to what you were saying, Ryder, about, um, you know, you'd be more forgiving if these poems were 400 years older, which I think is a really interesting <laughs> thing to say. Because... You know, these are about themes that every human has to discover anew by virtue of being right. born and, you know, right. facing your own death. So, you know, is this a tw- is this a 1920s way of dealing with these questions? Is this, you know, is this of the period? Is it one man dealing with themes he knows are universal? He has no, you know, question about that. He definitely doesn't think he's special or discovering something new in my mind he's i think he's feeling like he's dealing with universal themes very directly which is probably why people like him so much as well yeah well there's Mm -hmm. i mean that's a completely different approach to poetry than than like i was expressing before that i tend to think about poetry which is that um abstract elemental and sort of um nice sounding too you know like and 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 um seeking that familiarity and seeking that um just like nicely put like nice ways to put something do you know what i mean mm-hmm. like as a po- I mean, and that's true like that is a probably an important 
function of, of poetry. I mean, nowadays I tend to think of like catchy lyrics as the same kind of thing. You know, it's like, oh, that mm -hmm. was really a cool way to put it, and it becomes part of the way you think about these things just because the the wording and the phrasing um, is is really I don't know how else to say it, but well put. And um, there's definitely there's obviously an element of that 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 resonates for people and that strikes a chord mm -hmm. and and people keep returning to frost um in a way that i think most people don't return to t.s Eliot or you know mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. oh, that's I, a good point i don't know yeah. you know like yeah. we read t.s Eliot and we have to sort of be told the context of the wasteland and like right. this was a reference to this weird german autobiography that he had read and this is the, the reference to that and and you know I, I love it because to me, when I read Eliot, like actually just the lines themselves do resonate beautifully to me musically. Um, but uh, I do understand that it's mostly for kind of dusty scholars. You know, it's like the, it's 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 for people that like books to read. The, you, know, you know, you know what was interesting though is that in the title poem New Hampshire, they do talk about current events uh, in in the poem and certain political acts and laws and things and i was like i have absolutely no idea what these are <laughs> and they were so important at the time that he put them in the poem such yeah. touchstone you know cultural political events at the time and they're completely lost to us now but his poems about stopping and looking at snow falling and, or, or are those are the ones us. that are, right, are right. still with us well, yeah that's, right well, so there you go the, that's the, the point yeah. the, the reason is yeah i mean well Ryder, the difference between you and me is that i do not find the idea of staring into a frozen wooden woodsy wasteland and contemplating whether or not i'm ready to die like a nice thought so, <laughs> <laughs> that is something that that's the one feels the one difference painful to me Maybe you've never been, you know, standing alone in a wooded forest in New England, as I have many times, and thinking I could, I could die, you know, if I got lost or if I wanted to just curl up and. Get I think about. I feel like that at Target. Yeah. Like, I think I, I have way more existential sadness staring down the line of Walmart, like yeah. <laughs> Costco. Okay, just the well, existence of Costco oh, is Costco. like deep there, pathos. If, when you're in the center aisle at Costco, oh, and you're like, "Do Are I want to buy any clothes?" It's, for from me, the it's just aisle? looking at the outside of Costco and knowing I have to go in there. It's yeah, like, but oh. they got that good lemon cake. That lemon you cake. You guys need to good. write a poem called "Stopping by Costco on a Tuesday Evening." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we should totally do that. <laughs> yes, that that is our challenge. Stopping by Target on a Saturday night. Done. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, guys. Um, this uh, edition of the Dead Poet Society is officially concluded. Everyone, go stand on a table and scream something. <laughs> this episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks for our Best of 2013 episode. We'll play some games and nominate some books to the Literary Disco Hall of Fame. Thanks for listening. Romantic. <laughs>